welcoming Dr. Sonia Schreffer. She is at the forefront of STEM immunobiology, and her work paves the way for treatment of a wide range of diseases, from supporting functional recovery of failing myocardium to the der derivation of other cell types to treat diabetes, blindness, cancer, lung, neurodegenerative, and related diseases. Her work demonstrates that protecting transplanted cells from immune rejection is the key to unlocking the potential of regenerative medicine. She is, Dr. Schrefter is the professor at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, Gladstone UCSF Institute of Genomic Immunology, and a scientific founder and SVP head of immune, hypoimmune platform at, uh, at SANA Biotechnology Incorporated. Today, her talk is going to be translating discoveries, engineering of an allergenic donor cells for acceptance by the host immune system. And thank you very much for joining us. We're really uh, excited to hear what you have to share today. Thank you very much, Monica, for the kind introduction. I'm really excited to be here today. Um, so I, this is my disclosure slide before I start. And to the background of the studies we are doing, so I come from the field of solid organ transplantation, but whenever we transplant not only organs, but cells and tissues from one person into another, we face the, the problem with immune rejection because the recipient's immune system is recognizing the donor cells as foreign. And immunosuppression, as you can see on that picture, is, in my opinion, not the solution for regenerative medicine because we struggle with um, the immunosuppression with the patients if we give too, too much of the immunosuppression, we have the risk of infections, toxic side effects, etc. And if we don't give enough immunosuppression, we always face the, the problem of rejection of the organ. So for regenerative strategies, um, on the left side, um, the lifetime systemic immunosuppression is probably not the way to go. Um, there are other um, pathways or strategies to overcome an allogenic barrier. One is HLA banking. The HLA molecules are kind of a they often compare them with the fingerprint of the cells that the immune system of the recipients recognizes those HLA. So the fingerprint is foreign and starts rejecting. But at the same time, HLA molecules, they are presenting allopeptides that can get recognized by the immune system of the recipient. So the HLA banking, and I don't have time to go into details today in this talk, um, does have the risk of still allopeptide presentation, which then could lead to um, allopeptide recognition and also rejection. What I want to talk today is on the right side, the genetic hypoengineering approach. Um, that approach um, aims to transplant allogenic cells without the need of any immunosuppression. And when we started in that field, uh, we that was many, many years ago, uh, we learned from nature because during pregnancy, the fetus does express 50% of the proteins from the father, but the mother's immune system isn't rejecting the fetus, although the immune system is recognizing the fetus as um, allogenic or foreign. And um, we studied those molecules in detail. There were up to 13 molecules, either upregulated or downregulated. And what I show you today is the hypoimmune approach, what we call hypoimmune approach at SANA. That is that we having healthy donor cells, and then we are removing the MHC molecules, class one and class two, to wipe off that fingerprint on, on the cell. And what we achieve by that is that we can overcome T cell recognition and therefore T cell rejection, subsequently B cell and antibody rejection. So we overcome that adaptive immune hurdle. But because we are creating now a cell that doesn't have MHC or HLA molecules on the surface, 
that a cell is a so-called missing self cell. And innate immune cells, NK cells, macrophages, um, they are looking um, in our body for those cells without that fingerprint, without the MHC molecules, and they kill immediately. So to overcome that barrier of the innate immune killing, we are overexpressing a don't kill me molecule, the CD47. And um, what I, how I call the, the cells today in my talk is hypoimmune cells or hip cells for hypoimmune platform. And we were building on our previous work where first we tried to understand, um, is there a good HLA, a bad HLA? Is it good enough to downregulate the HLA? So do we really have to knock them off and wipe them off the, the cells we are transplanting? And what you see in that data slide here is that we created, those are human iPSCs, we created cells where we knocked out the HLA class 1, class 2 molecules on the left. And then we re-engineered back HLA C, E, or G. And what we learned in those early days was that whenever we have an HLA molecule on the surface that presents allopeptides, we do get recognition and the cells are getting killed by T cells. So we learned uh, from those experiments that to achieve immune evasion. So that's the goal that we can transplant cells. They don't get recognized by the immune system. We have to knock out the HLA molecules and don't have them on the surface. As I mentioned before, we now get the issue from the innate immune cell compartment, the NK cells, macrophages, especially, that they are killing the cells. And what you see in those videos when I'm starting is in green are the target cells. Those are human iPSCs in that case, so induced pluripotent stem cells. And we knocked out their HLA molecules, and then we overexpressed either HLA CEE, HLA G, PDL1, or the CD47. And we added NK cells. The NK cells are the little gray cells you're seeing. And when you look at the videos, uh, what we learned is that when we create a missing self cell that gets killed by, in this case, the NK cells, the overexpression of the CD47 on the right is protecting from a complete primary NK cell population like, like we find that in our patients. So we're not using NK cell lines here because they are so artificial with their receptor expression. Those experiments are done with primary NK cells. And uh, with those uh, data, we decided to move on with removing the HLAs overexpressing CD47 to overcome both the adaptive immune barrier as well as the innate immune barrier. And the goal is that we are starting with a healthy cell or iPSC induced pluripotent cell. We're using that genetic engineering to create the hyperimmune cells for providing off-the-shelf therapies without the need of immunosuppression for the patients to really have them ready any time for anyone, anywhere. And the advantages of course is that we wouldn't uh, need immunosuppression, that we have one well-characterized master cell line, which is easier to manufacture and easier for quality controls than if you would have to do that uh, for each cell separately. And what we learned uh, in the beginning from the mouse models is that we can overcome an adaptive immune barrier. What we did here is um, on the bottom row, I start on the bottom row, that we um, created induced pluripotent stem cells from mice. And those were black six mice, and then we transplanted them back into black six mice. And what you see here in blue is that there is no T cell activation because it's a very own cell. But uh, when we inject that into Bipsy mouse, that's a different um, strain, 
the immune system recognizes the black six iPSCs as four, and you see the gray is much higher than the blue. You also see that four IgM antibody binding. On the top row, those are now the hypoimmune iPSCs. So we created those three edits. And what we learned is that in biopsy mice, we can overcome the T cell activation. You see the gray and the blue are at the similar height, as well as the antibody uh, binding in that case. On the right side, you see in the middle that when we have mouse iPSCs and we remove that fingerprint, we get the killing by the NK cells. And when we overexpress CD47, you see how the line stays up and the cells are not getting killed. So those were very early experiments and uh, we moved on at SANA and wanted to find a translational approach. And uh, what we did is that we used the non-human primate model because the immune system is very similar to humans and it's um, an activated immune system, so a high bar study. And what we did here is we had four non-human primates where we transplanted unmodified non-human primate iPSCs into the muscle location. So we are looking here at the left leg of the recipient. And um, I like the muscle location a lot for those kind of studies because we get good engraftment, we get early revascularization within two weeks. So it's a really nice transplant site to achieve survival of, of the cells. And what you see is that on day zero, when you look at those four different NHPs, the cells are there. We labeled them that they overexpress luciferase, so we could follow them in vivo. But you see that after three weeks, the signal here is gone. And when you look at the what I call summary in the blue graphs, you see that in all four recipients, the immune system recognized the transplanted iPSCs as 4-iron and rejected them. Six weeks after that transplant, we transplanted hypoimmune iPSCs into the opposite leg muscle. So you see again on day zero, the cells are all there. The pictures show you the follow-up from four weeks and eight weeks. And when you look at the red lines, you see that the hypoimmune iPSCs are surviving. Uh, those NHPs didn't have any immunosuppression. And what you see out of those data is that even if the immune system knows the antigen, so the recipient was sensitized, the hypoimmune iPSCs are able to survive. And that shows the concept of immune evasion that um, it doesn't matter if the immune system has the knowledge of the antigen, if the concept of immune evasion works, the cells are not seen and they are um, able to survive. We did another set of experiment and other um, four NHPs where we first transplanted hypoimmune. So you see on day zero, the transplants, and then the pictures show you the four month data. Here, unfortunately, the second row, um, that little um, leg moved. So you see the signal over here because the image is over a period of five minutes. So if the anesthesia is not deep enough, sometimes the leg is moving. Um, so you see the the signal in, in the corner. And the other two pictures are at um, five weeks. You see the long-term data in the summary graph where hypoimmune is without immunosuppression surviving in those um, NHPs. After six weeks, we transplanted now unmodified iPSCs into the other mu muscle. And what you see is that they got rejected here quite fast. And that shows you that um, although we transplanted hypoimmune first, hypoimmune cells are not modifying the recipient's immune system. 
the recipients are capable of mounting a normal immune response. So um, we are not immunosuppressing or altering the recipient's immune system with the hypoimmune transplants at all. We then did um, a detailed immune analysis. I just show you here the high level data, but it was just published last week um, if you want to look it up in Nature Biotechnology. And what I want to show you here is that the unmodified iPSCs, they cause a T-cell activation as expected one week after the transplantation. The X-axis shows you the weeks after transplant and the Y-axis, the activation of the T-cells. That's an spot assay where we measure spot frequency. You see that after one week, uh, we have high T-cell activation, and then it declines over time. After six weeks, when we are transplanting the hypoimmune iPSCs, you see that there is no T-cell activation against hypoimmune. For the I IgM antibody production, you see the peak after one week, and then you see how it switches to the IgG antibodies here on the right side. So this is expected. That's what we would expect in humans, showing you how similar the the NHP immune system is. And um, after six weeks for hypoimmune, you don't see any de novo IgM antibodies coming up, nor do you see any IgG antibodies because the immune system didn't recognize that we transplanted hypoimmune. On the bottom, you see the vice versa experiment. First hypoimmune, you see there is no T-cell activation of the T uh, immune system, no IgM, nor IgG antibody production. After six weeks, when we transplant the unmodified iPSCs, you see that we see T-cell activation, IgM, and later the IgG antibody production. So the immune system is reacting and hypoimmune didn't suppress the immune system of those recipients. So with these data, we wanted to validate them in different models. And I don't have the time to show you all the data today, uh, but we did investigate hypoimmune IPC-derived cardiomyocytes and the IPC-derived RPEs uh, all of those studies were done in NHPs. But I thought I switch now from showing the platform data to really our detailed ILET data. So I would like to just share today the, the ILET data we have um, with hypoimmune. And what we did for that model is we didn't um, differentiate iPSCs into, into ILETs because those are non-human primates and we would have had to adapt the protocols for years. And I really wanted to prove or investigate or validate the hypoimmune platform in that model. So what we did is we used non-human primate pancreas, we created the hypoimmune edits, and we transplanted those primary hypoimmune islets, again, into the muscle location of allogenic NHPs without any immunosuppression. And what you see on the top row is in the muscle location that we have the islets in the IM location. And the follow-up here I'm showing you is 10 months. So that NHP um, has the hypoimmune islets in the IM location for 10 months without any immunosuppression. You see in the graph in blue, the line. Just as comparison, when we would transplant unmodified wild-type islets, you see that they are rejected quite fast within a week. That's here the gray line. So if they don't have the hypoimmune edits. We looked into the um, into the immune analysis of those recipients as well for the islets. And first, I show you here the NK cell killing assays. So the hypoimmune islets don't get killed by NK cells. However, when in that assay we are blocking the CD47 with a blocking antibody, you see how the curve hits the x-axis quite fast, and this um, means killing in that assay. So this anti-CD47 strategy first 
confirms the mechanism that CD47 is the molecule protecting the missing self cells from the NK-cell killing, but it also offers a potential safety strategy if we would like to eliminate the transplanted cells um, in our recipients. In theory, you could think about blocking the CD47 molecule pathway, and the cells would get cleared quite fast by the innate immune system. Um, I showed you in the IPC data before we don't have antibody production, and therefore because we don't have antibody binding to hypoimmune, we're not seeing any CDC that's complement-dependent cytotoxicity or ADCC, the antibody-dependent cell cytotoxicity, so we overcome those hurdles uh, simply because the antibodies are not binding. If you compare, compare that to unmodified islets on the top, what you see is those recipients had IgM and IgG antibodies, and subsequently what we are seeing is that the cells get killed by the CDC and the ADCC. So hypoimmune, this is an adaptive immune response is able to overcome this adaptive immune barrier we are facing in, in allotransplantation. And this is one slide I thought it fits very well to what we are discussing today, but it is unpublished. Um, but what I want to show you here is this is a disease model. So the NHP I showed you before was unhealthy NHP. But what we did now is that we had an NHP where on day zero, we induced diabetes. So here's the STC treatment. And then you see that over two months, uh, that NHP was treated with insulin. Um, you look, the red graphs are the blood glucose, the fasting blood glucose levels AM, and in blue you see it in PM, and they get measured every day. And what you see is that after two months, we were allowed to do our cell transplant of hypoimmune islets, exactly like I showed you before into the IM location. And you see that um, the first seven days, we still gave the insulin, but then in that gray area here, we tapered out the insulin. And since day 89, we are completely without insulin, no immunosuppression. And you see here how the glucose levels look quite promising. Um, this is just an end of one and very early, but I thought it fits quite well to what we're looking at today. So I really I wanted to share those data with you that so far, although it's early in the days, of course, um, the transplant here without immunosuppression is able to, to give metabolic um, control and uh, without the need of any immunosuppression. When you look at the C-peptide levels before the STC, um, that gray, gray dark bar, um, that is the C-peptide of the NHP. And then this is 50 days after STC. And the second one is the day of the transplant. So an hour before we did the cell transplant, you see the C-peptide. And then one week, seven days after cell transplant, it's back in the green normal range. And this is two weeks after the cell transplant. So we are waiting, of course, longer follow-up, but the study is ongoing. We just had started. So with that, um, I showed you how hypoimmune edits um, are aiming to overcome the allogenic barrier. However, in type 1 diabetes, we do have the, allo uh, the autoimmune barrier as well. So we wanted to study um, if that autoimmune barrier can also be overcome with the three edits I showed you. So we use the not shield mice model because it's just an established model uh, in that area. And we transplanted here the islet cells from not mice into 
not mice with diabetes, so which have the autoimmune disease. And you see the glucose here, glucose levels are up, and you don't really see where we are transplanting the, the mouse stays um, diabetic over the observation of one month. You see when we transplant the cells on day zero, they are all in the IM location, but because of that autoimmune component in that mouse model, the cells are getting killed. So this killing is not allogenic killing because it's the same mouse strain. So the, the barrier shouldn't be there. There shouldn't be an allotransplant barrier. However, this is the autoimmune barrier we are looking at. And within seven days, the cells were all killed. What we did on the right side is that we used the same islets from the same mouse, not mice, and we created the hypoimmune edits and we transplanted them into the IM location. And you see the follow-up is one month. Usually what we are doing is that the recipients were all diabetic, so glucose levels are quite high. At day zero, that's the time when we do the cell transplantation. And you see that around day 10, that the glucose levels are significantly down and they are like around the 200 target range. Um, and you do see that after one month, how the, the hypoimmune islets are surviving and they are not being killed in that autoimmune um, model. So we summarized here that this autoimmune killing does not affect hypoimmune survival nor function, but we wanted really to study that with human islets. And there wasn't a good um, model out there because we can transplant our human cells into mice. That would be xenogenic. We would cross the species barrier and autoimmune, um, our hypoimmune cells are designed for allogenic transplantation. So within the same species. So what we did is we had to develop an in vivo model. We got PBMCs from a patient with type 1 diabetes. And with those PBMCs, we created a humanized mouse. So that mouse does now have the immune system from that type 1 diabetic person. And at the same time, we used the PBMCs and we created induced pluripotent stem cells. So we reprogrammed them. And then when they became iPSCs, we either left them unmodified or we created hypoimmune iPSCs with our three edits, the HLA class one, class two knockout, CD47 overexpression. And then we transplanted those unmodified or hypoimmune iPSCs. We, we differentiated them into islets and transplanted them into the IM location of those mice. So the immune system and those islets are from the very same person. So there shouldn't be any allo rejection. It's the same person. Um, the only, the only killing that that uh, is done in, in that system is that coming from the PBMCs, which are from the autoimmune patient. And what you see is when we are transplanting the unmodified islet cells into those mice, is that they get killed quite fast. Within 10 days, they were all gone. To get that functional readout, we treated the mice with STC. So you see on day zero, when we do the cell transplantation, the glucose levels were up. And they were, weren't controlled after the transplant. There was no movement because the cells got rejected so fast. When we did the very same experiment, but now we use the hypoimmune islets, you see at day 13, where the unmodified were already killed, they are here surviving in the IM location. Then when I looked at the data at day 13, I thought that looks quite promising. However, we don't have any proof that the immune system of those mice would also be able to kill the unmodified islets. So we decided to transplant after day 13, 
unmodified wild types into the other leg of the very same mice. And what you see here in the graph, it's most likely better to see than in the pictures, you see that the unmodified islets in that model get killed very fast, whereas the hypoimmune cells in the very same mice, they are able to survive. So that shows you that we can overcome that barrier in that specific model. And you see the glucose control on day zero, um, we had high glucose levels, but around, I think it was day 14, the glucose levels were down and you see the C-peptide was above the target level of 600 picomole per liter. So that shows you that the hypoimmune cells here didn't just survive, but they were able to function in, the, in that specific model. So that is um, one additional model where we wanted to investigate in vivo the autoimmune barrier. We then moved on and um, investigated a little bit more in detail the human islets. And here we are looking at cadaveric human islets. We are able to do the gene modifications within seven days and then create hypoimmune cadaveric human islets. And you see that in vitro, um, here the hypoimmune islets are performing similar to the unmodified islets showing you in vitro that those three hypoimmune edits are not affecting the islet biology, which is very important. For each cell type we are investigating for the hypoimmune platform, that's one of the first experiments we are trying to understand if those three hypoimmune edits are impairing in any way either IPC differentiation into a target cell or the biology of the target cell type. And we started that in vivo, as you can see here, where we used NSG mice. The NSG mice don't have an immune system, so cells should survive. And you see that on the right side, the unmodified Y-type islets are surviving beautifully in that model. You see how the high glucose levels on the day of the transplant are dropping, and you see the C-peptide. And when you compare those data on the right with the left, you can conclude that the data looks similar, meaning that the three hypoimmune edits we did to the hypoimmune islets on the left are not impacting the biology. And you see the glucose levels dropped, C-peptide is similar. So with that knowledge that we are not changing the biology, we moved on into a humanized mouse model to understanding the barrier. And what we did is those humanized mice have a human immune system when we are transplanting the wild-type unmodified human cadaveric islets, you see, as expected, they get rejected. No glucose control here. The C-peptide is down. When we do the same experiment with the HLA class 1, class 2 knockout cells, you also see the killing. This killing is not mediated by the adaptive immune system, but the innate. And you also see no glucose control. The levels stay up. And only with the third edit, the CD47, overexpression, we achieve that long-term survival in humanized mice. The glucose levels are dropping. C-peptide is um, up. That C-peptide is always analyzed one month after the transplantation. And you see in histology how the hypoimmune islets are uh, in the muscle location and there is no local immune infiltrate or immune cells around the cells trying to attack them or to reject them. So with that, we, we looked a little bit more into the CD47 strategy and uh, we transplanted into humanized mice again, the allogenic hyperimmune islets here on the left. And we gave an isotype antibody. That's an antibody that doesn't really do anything. And what you see is hypoimmune, as I showed you before, they can survive in humanized mice. The glucose levels are dropping. But on the right side, when we are now giving an anti-CD47 antibody, 
that anti-CD47 antibody is blocking the CD47 molecule from the signaling to the receptor, the CYP1-alpha. And what you see is that the signal disappears over time. The cells are getting rejected or yeah, killed, rejected by the innate immune system. And you see on day of the transplant, day zero, the glucose levels are dropping while the transplant is in the animals. But now we start uh, the antibody and you see how the glucose levels are going up again because the cells get killed. In that specific data, in that specific experiment here, we administered the antibody locally. So we injected it into the muscle location. On the next slide, what I want to show you is that we can also give the antibody systemically. So here it was an IP injection and you see a similar data result that giving that antibody into those recipients, the cells are getting killed and you see that the glucose levels are coming up over time again because the cells are eliminated. On the left, you just see the isotype control. So the last few slides I want to show you, instead of using primary islets, um, that we can also think about using induced pluripotent stem cells, for example, pluripotent stem cells, differentiate them into islets to have a two of the shelf therapy. You have one well-characterized master cell bank and you can provide as many islets um, as you need. And what you see here is that those IPCs, human IPCs, were differentiated uh, into islets, and first we transplanted them into NSG mice. That is the experiment I showed you before for the primary islets, where we just want to understand if the hypoimmune edits are impairing the differentiation or the islet biology. And what you see is on the right side, these are unmodified islets, how they perform. Glucose are going down. They are all surviving C-peptide levels. And you see on the left side, the three hypoimmune edits don't seem to impact the differentiation nor here the, the function of the IPC-derived islets. And then we transplant them into humanized mice. Now we have a fully intact immune system. And what we have seen for primary islets before is that the allogenic unmodified islets do get rejected in the model quite fast. We see glucose levels stay up. Same is true when we have HLA class one, class two knockout IPC-derived islets. So this is very really fast killing by the NK cells and macrophages. But on the left side, when you look at the hyperimmune IPSCs, when they were differentiated into islets, they are surviving. You see the metabolic function and the C-peptide is um, here around, it was around 600 picomol per liter. So with that, um, I want to conclude that there's the key findings we have from those studies are, first of all, that we can um, evade the allogenic immune rejection with those three hypoimmune edits that um, because of the CD47 overexpressing, um, there is no missing self-response um, by NK cells or macrophages. I showed you the NHP data where we can even transplant into sensitized recipients, which had the unmodified cells before, and the principle of the immune evasion still works. And um, the hypoimmune cells themselves are not altering the recipient's immune system. So we think that cellular transplantation without immunosuppression appears to be an achievable goal for the cells uh, and for the, for the field. And um, I want to, to point you to this review that was published, I think, last year by the Weiss University, where they discussed, in my opinion, quite nicely how to shield islets that they don't get rejected by the immune system. They're discussing, of course, immunosuppression, encapsulation. 
But then under number four, they're discussing the approach I just showed you with the MHC removal and the CD47 overexpression. And what I like about that value is you see that the number four is in a different box to other approaches which um, have tolerance induction. Because the number four I just showed you is a different way to think about it. It is the principle of immune evasion, whereas the tolerance induction approaches you see in the field have a quietly different strategy. And that was the first value I saw that makes the distinguished between number three and number four, which I liked um, a lot. And then I want to share where we are with our eyelids. I'm very excited um, that we are doing an investigator-sponsored trial as early as this year with hyperimmune primary cadaveric eyelid cell transplantations into type 1 diabetic patients with really the goal that we see cell survival with no immunosuppression. And we hope we have the data in 2023. And I would love to come back and, and share them when we are there. And the key measured outcomes we, we are looking for is safety. That's our um, first goal, of course. And then cell survival, immune evasion. We will also look for C-peptide or glucemic uh, control in those transplant recipients. And the pipeline, um, what I want to mention is that the hypoimmune CAR T cells, so in the oncology space, that the IND got cleared and uh, that we also expect data from hypoimmune CAR Ts in 2023. And then down the line, I'm very excited about the stem cell derived pancreatic islets uh, we are doing for type 1 diabetes. And then, of course, other oncology spaces and clear progenitor cells for other diseases. Um, which the clear progenitor will not be with an hyperimmune approach in the beginning, but the others are. So I'm very excited about the overall field. I think there are big changes for the cell transplant field in general out there, and I'm really excited um, that we can be part of that and that um, can't wait to see what the next years are bringing. And with that, um, I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much. That was fascinating and really uh, so much progress in such a short period of time. It's just amazing. We have a few questions already in the chat and I encourage people to add some more. Um, from uh, Kiari Girder, how many weeks do mice survive as all the data is up to one month? Oh yeah, great question. So unfortunately for time reasons, I just showed the one, one month data, but we have up to six months and the monkey was um, up to 10 months, I showed you. So we do have longer um, follow-ups uh, in those animals, but those are separate studies, mainly then focusing on safety or biodistribution. That's why I didn't put it in here. But um, yeah, but, but those are the longer follow-ups. Great, thank you. And then from Daniel Espis, a very impressive and fascinating data. I was just curious uh, if you see any alterations of the revascularization of hypoimmune islets, and if you see macrophages or other immune cells surrounding the islet graft, after cellular death due to non-immune related factors, i.e. hypoxia? So that's a great question. And I do think that we would have macrophages after the cell transplantation, because whenever we do cell transplantation, cells are dying, shear stress, the um, hypoxia in the beginning. The, the thing is that we never went in that early, but I would expect that if we would go in for that histology, that we would find a lot of macrophages clearing the area and hypoimmune cells uh, that survive the transplant and are engrafted, then they overcome that immune barrier. So it's an excellent question, but because we have the BLI, what I showed you, and we see the cell survival, we're not going in that early to not sacrifice um, the NHPs. 
but what we do see in the pictures I showed you is that in the BLI signal day zero, it always drops in the early days. That is an expected drop because of the hypoxia, the shear stress, and the, cell, the early cell death of the cells that are not engrafting. We never see 100% engraftment. It's always a, a drop, and then they stabilize because they don't get rejected. Thanks for that. Um, I've got Alberto Palesi from City of Hope. I wonder if he can unmute himself. Hi, um, uh, hi Monica and hi um, Sonja. Uh, great, great work. Uh, very exciting. Delighted that you're going to move clinical trials really fast. But I had a question. Um, so you show that you do the HIP modification even from isolated islets from organ donors, right? And then you transplant those and it was all very successful. My question is, to what extent do you actually modify every single cell in the islet that then you end up transplanting? Is it possible that you may successfully modify, I don't know, 50%, 80%, whatever percent it is, and make the ones that are not actually modified, what happens to them? Are they eliminated over time? And so there is a little bit of a response, but from your data overall, in terms of inducing immune responses, you did not seem to find anything. But um, so I just don't know. Um, I wonder if you have looked into that, if, maybe if you have some histology data of sort that can help us understand that. Yes, and we, we did those experiments. So the studies I showed you in the NHPs and also then the investigator-sponsored trial, we will have a product that's purified for HLA knockout cells for the reason that we want to have kind of a cleaner product. But that being said, it would work. We did that experiment. I just didn't put it in where we transplanted what I call like a bulk population where we had 50% unmodified and 50% hypoimmune. And what we see is we get an immune response. You can measure that. So you get antibodies up, et cetera. They are just not targeting the fully edited cells, but they're eliminating the others. So what we get over time is an enrichment of hypoimmune. So we did a study that was for the hypoimmune CAR-Ts where in, we injected a bike population, 50% were hypoimmune. And after three months in humanized mice, only the hypoimmune CAR-Ts were enriched and all of the cells were hypoimmune and all the others were cleared by the immune system. Um, and so you we, you could go that route. You It would work if you would go in with a bike population. But for the islet uh, trial I showed you and the NHP, I just like to purify for HLA knockout. And the, the cells that are not completely overexpressing CD47 but have the knockout, they would get eliminated really fast by the innate immune cells. But it doesn't hurt the hypoimmune because the, there is no recognition of those cells, so they are capable of surviving. Great answer. Um, we have several more questions. Uh, Christopher Clifford, super interesting presentation. Thank you. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the likelihood of these cells being infected by pathogens and how would this be dealt with? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think um, for each disease, each patient population, we have to think about um, safety strategies. I don't advocate necessarily for an engineered safety switch. In some diseases and patient population, it makes sense, but you can think about other strategies. So in the oncology space, for example, I just mentioned with hypoimmune, you could clear the cells. You could either uh, give CAMPATH or um, you eliminate the, the CAR-Ts. So there is not the need for a safety switch. In other um, instances, for example, the IPC-derived islets, what I showed you, 
um, there it would make sense to have an additional safety switch. I showed you the anti-CD47 data, but because the antibody is not available in the clinic yet, um, to have an additional safety switch might make sense in that case. For the primary eyelids I showed you, um, the transplant will be in the IM location, so the forearm of the recipient. So there you have completely different safety um, approaches because first primary eyelids don't have the risk of teratoma development, et cetera, like uh, maybe pluripotent stem cells have. And then you can monitor them quite well in the forearm. You can access the transplant. It's not like in the portal vein that you have issues to access the cells. So I think it's a very complicated question. Each team has to think deeply about how they how they approach it for, for their disease and for their um, strategy. And then the pathogens, that's a really good question. So it's always discussed if hypoimmune cells, if you get a viral infection, if they get become a viral reservoir. We haven't seen it yet. And there are data out, I think, by, by MIT, if I recall that right, where um, mice which have no um, class one, so they are better to um, knock out mice, they are capable of clearing viruses. It still is a theoretical risk. So, and for that reason, I think um, everyone has to think about safety strategies, how I just mentioned them. Um, I personally think probably the risk is low, uh, but, but it is a theoretical risk. I agree. Thank you. Here's one from Matthias von Herreth. <clears throat> Have you used an in vitro 3D model with combined aloe and autoimmunity to test your immune evasive islets? Yeah, so the, the problem with in vitro is for innate immune cells, in vitro assays um, are great. It's a great solution. But for the adaptive immunity, you really need that recipient immune system to communicate with each other. I mean, we do have models where we can study T-cell responses in vitro, but you have to have a really long stimulation protocol, et cetera. So it's really hard to to imitate an adaptive, a full immune and full adaptive immune response in vitro. That's why we try to use the humanized mice or the NHPs I showed you, um, because we think it's the most most likely the stronger model. Um, yeah. But that being said, I would love, Matthias, if you have a 3D model, please email me. Would love to test it. <clears throat> well, we've got sounds good. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Um, we've got a couple more. Jason Gaglia, the muscle site has historically been very difficult transplant site. Are you doing anything to make this site more hospitable? Do you think CD47 expression by itself, independent of immune effects, impacts engraftment in this site? That's another great question. So there are um, speculate, I would call it speculations that CD47 might help with engraftment. For us, it was really hard. I wanted to study it, but I don't have a good model because the mice I show you they're just simply engrafting very nicely. Also the unmodified ones I showed you in the, in the NSG mouse. So I would need a model where the engraftment is a challenge to really study the, the contribution of CD47, but it is discussed in the field that it might help with engraftment, but I don't have any data to really support uh, that, that hypothesis. And then the muscle location itself, we have great investigators who, who did um, IM locations in the forearm and we're really blessed that we get the chance to work with them. So um, I think then over time we will see, I'm happy to come back and, and update. Um, yeah, no, we'll be very studies. interested to have you come back. From okay. Ed Phelps at University of Florida, what happens if you only uh, do only CD47 with no HLA knockout? Hmm. Yeah. 
we did those experiments. So what you what you will get is an adaptive killing and T cell killing antibody response because the HLA molecules are really responsible for that adaptive immune response. So if you're not wiping them off, the main barrier is really T cells and B cells and antibody production. To be honest, we just get into that hurdle of the innate immune system because we are wiping off the HLAs. So we are creating an issue here. And because we have now that missing self and we initiate that innate immune cell killing, that's why we need to overexpress CD47. So for an immune evasion concept, only CD47 uh, would not overcome the adaptive immune barrier. Um, from uh, Jennifer Wang at UMass Chan Medical School, is there a dose-dependent effect with CD47 overexpression? Uh, example, a minimum threshold. Yeah, great question. Yes, and we published that for different cell types. So for each cell type, we have to analyze that specific for the cell type. So there are threshold levels of CD47 you have to be above. We weren't able to identify a range because there was never too much CD47. That might be an editing limitation that we just get don't get so much on the surface that we see something, but uh, we do have a threshold. And um, for example, we just published the hypoimmune CAR-Ts two weeks ago. Uh, when I looked first at the data, T cells have really high CD47 already by themselves without doing anything. So the first question was maybe that's already enough. So it is not so. Also here we have to overexpress CD47, but it is cell type specific and we have to understand the threshold for each cell type. Thank you. And then the last one here is Audrey Parent from UCSF. What is the mouse strain used for the humanized studies? And is the killing by innate cells by human or mouse innate cells? Oh, great question. Yeah, so the humanized mouse data I showed you today, those are all the SGM3 mice. So um, when we order them, we always make sure that we have enough CD45, CD3 engraftment in those mice. So we look at the, at the tables first and select the mice with the high engraftment of the immune system. And the killing you have seen, we studied that. So the killing comes from the mouse with um, residual macrophages, as well as we like to also transplant human and casals um, as booster, as adoptive transfer into those mice. So that is where the innate immune cell killing is coming from. Fantastic. I just wanted to um, sort of qualify one thing, you know, what, as you are moving into these, you have, you guys have your IND, you re, you know, kind of moving into the clinic in humans. Um, and you mentioned the forearm uh, for the site of transplant. What is that going to look like that engraftment and what's, what's the sort of the strategy you're going to inject the patient and um, you, do you have any expectations of how long that injection may last? Uh, will there be a secondary dose? Can you oh, sort of just lay out that in a high level view? Yeah, great study design questions. Um, so the concept at the moment, what we are aiming to do is uh, one donor cadaveric um, pancreas and then the hypoimmune edits as we discussed earlier and Alberto's uh, question were that we are losing, of course, over so the overall hypoimmune islets are less than one pancreas, but um, that will be the, the amount we are transplanting into the IM location of the recipient, not with the goal of uh, insulin independence or not even to see in those early transplant metabolic function that the first goal is safety and survival. And we will, we expect, or I expect uh, from my perspective, um, 
to see when we see the survival one week, two weeks after transplantation, we know that we can overcome the allogenic barrier. Of course, there's much more that can happen afterwards, but that first allogenic immune rejection and response, we can see quite early. And that would be already for me, uh, because we work so long in that immune barrier, already something I would celebrate. Will then the cells engraft long-term, et cetera, there are also other components playing into that. And the hypoimmune edits, we discussed that maybe CD47 helps, but maybe not. So the edits are not assigned to really enhance engraftment. So we would need that engraftment working as well to see a long-term um, follow-up. But um, for me, I, I'm most excited to see those early dates, um, like I showed you in the NHPs where the peak is, when we overcome that peak, I will already for myself have a good feeling. But of course, for the field, we want to see engraftment long-term, um, of course, long-term engraftment, and then subsequently metabolic control. Right. Yeah. This is uh, this is just wonderful. I mean, um, I feel like there's a lot of opportunities for collaborations or the conversation opened the door for some collaborations, which is fantastic. Uh, I guess my last question is, how might this approach complement or expedite what's been um, the the approach of Vertex? Oh, Vertex, sure. yeah. yeah. I mean, Vertex is a human embryonic stem cell-derived islet, so, but the patients were immunosuppressed. So what I show today is really um, how can you overcome that allo barrier that you don't need to immunosuppress the recipient. So it is complementary in that sense. I showed you some IPC-derived islets today, but they are different. You can use human embryonic or IPC-derived. I think the, um, there is not one or the other, I would think, uh, that are better. Um, but the, the goal is really this immunosuppression is so uh, burdensome for, for our patients. And of course, um, the daily it's a daily struggle with the immunosuppression and the toxicity, et cetera. Um, the patients have the risk of becoming cancer, um, nephrotoxicity, liver toxicity, etc. So many side effects that I think in the future for two of the shelf strategies for our patients, we we need to get rid of the immunosuppression. All right. Well, that sounds very promising. Um, thank you so much, Sonia. This was uh, fascinating and really applaud all your efforts in the field. It's just, um, it's, it's exciting times. And we hope to uh, hear from, hear back from you soon with some more, um, you know, more great news. Thank you again for speaking with us today and um, have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much.